three Nigerian uh, Institute of Promotion Commission, also investment promotion here with us this morning. We also have Zuberu Aliu representing the GMD NNPC here with us this morning. Mr. Vama, CEO, President of Shivya Natural Bio Limited India, and Postis Fama. And uh, I also recognize with us Umaru Buhari Safana, representative of the Honorable Minister, Federal Ministry of Industry, Trade, and Investment, Dr. Ukichiku Enelama. Thank you for being part of it this morning. And uh, quickly to recognize one of us here, who is also, you know, in the service of government, and that's talking about uh, uh, recognizing the uh, minority leader in Kaduna State. We thank you for giving your support to this project. We're taking on the next uh, item on our program, and which is the, uh, the keynote address. Now, one of the finest of the traditional institution has been saddled with this responsibility. Uh, he is a man that uh, when he lends his voice to any issue, Nigerians are all around bound to listen to him. And all times that he has taken on the podium, he has come out with uh, solutions to problems of Nigeria, either in the economic sector or as it relates to the well-being of the Nigerian people. Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, our guests this morning who will be taking our keynote address is the Emma of Kano, His Royal Highness Muhammad Sanusi II, CON, also the Emma of Kano. Sir. And he will be sharing his thoughts with us on the investment, uh, he will be sharing his thoughts with us on promoting investments in the midst of economic challenges. Your Royal Highness, sir. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa mawala. Your Excellency, the Executive Governor of Kaduna State, Malam Nasser Ahmed Arufai, Your Excellency, the Deputy Governor, Architect Barnabas Yusuf Bala, the Right Honorable Speaker Aminu Abdullahi Shagali, Your Eminence Sultan Muhammad Saad Abubakar, Serkim Musulmi, Your Excellency. Governor Donald Duke, Excellencies, members of the Diplomatic Corps, development partners, ladies and gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's a great honor for me to be invited to give a keynote on this occasion. And it was a great pleasure watching my friend and brother, Governor Nasser Erufai, talk to us 
about his vision for making Kaduna great again. I was a bit worried about that vision because it reminds me of Donald Trump's making America great again. Uh, and, um, and everything I know about Nasser tells me he's not exactly a Donald Trump double. You know, I've always talked about my friendship with Governor Erufai. We've been friends since we were teenagers. And as I said during the launch of his book, people keep asking me, how come you're always friends with this Erufai? And I say, I need him because he's the only person in the public space that makes me look like a moderate. You know, usually people go to my friends and say, including the Sultan now, they go to him and say, look, talk to the Emir of Kano. And everyone, talk to the governor, talk to your friend, talk to your friend, he's too radical. But what I find is that people come to me and say, please talk to your friend Nasser. You know, he's <laughs> so, um, and so long as um, I continue to have that, you know, I have, I'm comfortable that I'm not the most extreme and most radical public officer. So I have to keep close to Governor Nasser. I've been asked to speak on promoting investments in the midst of economic challenges. And maybe we should look at what these economic challenges are and take a broad view of the environment in which we are, because we can't just talk about Kaduna State. Kaduna State exists in northern Nigeria. Northern Nigeria exists in Nigeria. Nigeria exists in Africa, and Africa is part of a global economic infrastructure. So as we look at the investment environment in the world, we've got to look at what is happening in other parts of the world. What are the implications of a Donald Trump presidency and a return to US isolationism? What are the implications of Brexit for Nigeria, for the European Union? We have elections happening all over Europe. We don't know what they're going to come up with. From the perspective of progressives and liberals, we've had a very good election in the Netherlands. We had a big scare, but Germany and France are still up in the air. We have a world that has seen of recent the emergence of hard right-wing leaders, and some have hardened as the years have gone by. So look at Turkey, look at Russia, look at Israel, look at China, even South Africa. Now, what does this say for the world in which we live? For multilateralism, for cooperation, for an interest in development, and for the big issues around poverty, unemployment, and so on. Now, obviously, still in the tail end of a global crisis, started since 2008, we're not really out of it. U.S. interest rates have gone up, which is a sign that U.S. economy is growing. There are signs of slow recovery in Europe. Our own economy, Nigeria, is in recession. Um, let me start um, by saying that I will try very, very hard not to offend anyone. 
Um, and let me, in any case, apologize in advance in case anyone is offended by what I have to say. So let's look at Nigeria, because this is the environment in which we live. We have a lot of good news coming out. You can see from the IMF Article 4 consultation, um, it's not as negative as it should have been in the, in the light of certain recent developments. But the environment remains challenging. Money supply growth, an inflation rate of almost 20%, multiple exchange rates, which are now beginning to see some convergence. The bad news politically, if you've been reading Nigerian newspapers for the last two, three weeks, and watching Nigerian TV, and following Nigerian social media, you would be concerned about the leadership. The conversation is not about electricity, about infrastructure, about education, about healthcare. In the last one month, all the conversation is about the National Assembly, the executive, the judiciary, conflicts between this politician and that politician, confirmation of EFCC, there has been no serious conversation around the people, which is why I decided that I would attend this, because this is the first conversation I'm seeing that actually is not about politicians fighting each other. Now, the, the problem with all that noise is that it has all the consequences of noise. No matter what you're doing, if you create too much noise, nobody sees your good work. Nobody is seeing progress on security. Nobody sees progress on the fight against corruption. All we see is a constant struggle between certain politicians and others holding this entire country to ransom. And all of us have been sucked into it. So let me join the Sultan by calling on our political leaders at the national and sub-national level to please remember that elections are in 2019, not 2017. Nobody wins an election in 2017. It is not yet time. Let's talk about education and healthcare. We all understand, when we get to late 2018, you stop working and politicize. We all understand that. But it is too early to leave your posts. You can't be in politics for four years. And this is a big problem. So we're talking about a difficult economic environment. A lot of that difficulty is self-inflicted. Now let's talk about policies. I've spoken a few times on the economy. I think I've actually said enough. Um, there isn't much to add, but what I will do is I will summarize what my position has been in the last two years. If you look at Africa in the so-called Africa rising decade, and you look at African economies and their GDP and ask yourself, what has been the major driver of growth in Africa? And why has that suddenly changed? You'd find that Africa rising was a story that was built on two pillars. 
The first pillar was rising commodity prices, occasioned partly by the rise of China, the strength of Chinese and Indian growth. The second was rising debt. Because what happened was after the Paris Club and London Club negotiations, after the HIPC programs, African economies found themselves deleveraged, and then they quietly went on a borrowing binge, borrowing domestically to fund recurrent expenditure. And that fueled growth. And that was true of Nigeria, as was true of many other commodity producing African countries. Now, as a country, we need to understand that, that the growth of Nigeria in the periods of high growth was driven largely by rising commodity prices and debt. And that model has now reached the logical limits. The collapse in oil price has made that very obvious. Today, if you're looking at debt, if you take the IMF Article 4 consultation report, the federal government of Nigeria is spending 66% of its revenue on interest on debt. 66%. Which means only 34% of revenue is available for capital expenditure, for recurrent expenditure, and for development. That model cannot work. If you look at the 2017 budget of the federal government, and I don't know if people are looking at those headline numbers, and I sometimes wonder what Nigerian economists are doing. The 2017 budget presented by the federal government, the amount earmarked for debt service is in excess of the entire non-all revenue of the federal government. But that's not the problem. The problem is that it is also a budget that also goes for even more debt. So if you're paying 66% of your revenue as interest, and you add more debt, where do you stop? 70%, 80%, when do you stop? And the key to fora such as this is that as a country at the national level, and as state governments at the sub-national level, we need to understand that the model of government borrowing and spending has reached its limit. Growth can only come from investment. Growth can only come from investment. It cannot come from consumption. It cannot come from the government balance sheet because government doesn't have money. It cannot come from borrowing because you cannot borrow unsustainably, and everybody from the federal government to the state and local government has to ask one question and one question only. How do I make Nigeria, how do I make my state, how do I make my local government, my Emirates, the attractive destination for the scarce capital flying around the world? And, and I honestly, I honestly do not think either at the national or at the, and I'm, I have the head of NIPC here, I stand to be corrected. I don't think that that mindset change has happened. And the way to see it is to look at the budget. 
if you're still borrowing money to finance infrastructure, then you're still in that mindset of borrow and spend. We have governors, they go to China, spend one month on a tour of China, and what do they come back with? MOUs for debt. China will lend you $1.8 billion to build light rail. You know, this light rail will be done by, the rail will come from China, the trains will come from China, the engines come from China, the labor comes from China, the driver is Chinese. At the end of the day, what do you benefit from it, your citizens? You ride on a train. And when you ride on this train, if you're in northern Nigeria, if you're in a state like Kano or Katsina, if you ride on a light rail train, where are you going to? You're not going to an industrial estate to work. You're not going to school. You're not going to the farm. You borrow money from China to invest in trains so that your citizens can ride on the train and go for weddings and naming ceremonies. Because that is all that is happening. There is no economy. Why do you want a train if you don't have an economy? And, you know, these are what we, because at the end of the day, a nation and a state is only transformed by vision. Once that vision is flawed, every single thing that follows from that logically collapses, which is why I like the idea of an investment company, because anyone who is interested in bringing investors, anyone who's like we listen today saying, come and invest in Kaduna, has already made that mindset change and said, you know what, the growth of my economy is not going to come, it's not going to come from me borrowing money, um, Sorry, this is Chinese silk, so it's just look like... Um, you know? You know, that the... You know, that the... You've made the mindset that the growth of my state is not going to come from me going to burden my balance sheet with even more debt to build roads. Why do you want... Why do you want the government to build power plants? Why do you want the government to build rails, rail lines? If these rail stations, if this light rail is profitable, make it possible for a private investor to come and build it. Now, I say this because in northern Nigeria in particular, the governments need to conserve their resources for those areas where government has failed in the last few decades. We need to invest in education. We need to invest in healthcare. We are in denial. The Northwest and the Northeast, demographically, constitute the, the bulk of Nigeria's population. But look at human development indices. Look at the number of children out of school. Look at adult literacy. Look at maternal morbidity. Look at infant mortality. 
Look at girl child completion rates. Look at per capita income. The Northeast and the Northwest of Nigeria are among the poorest parts of the world. Not just Nigeria. As far back as 2000, I looked at the numbers, Borono and Yobe states, UNDP figures, go back to human development indices, 2000, Borno and Yobe states, if they were a country on their own, were poorer than Niger and Cameroon and Chad. Nobody saw this because we're looking at Nigeria as a country that averages the all-rich Niger Delta, the industrial and commercial rich Lagos, the commercially viable Southeast, and you have an average. Break Nigeria into its component parts, and this part of the country is among the poorest, if it were a country, would be one of the poorest nations in the world. And we do not realize we are in trouble. Oh, by the way, I see that when Governor Irofai said they have moved the movie production to Kaduna, all the TV cameras turned on me. Uh, let me remind everyone that I publicly opposed that opposition to the movie industry. Because as an economist, as an economist, I know that setting up, building Kennywood is one of the major strategies that would have led to the growth of the economy of Kano. We already had a comparative advantage. An industry that would have created jobs. We already have a youthful population that is being imaginative that's producing good movie ideas that are popular. We're producing actors and actresses, costume designers, photographers, and that entire industry is now being moved to Kaduna. I'm sad that Kano has lost it. I'm happy that Kaduna is getting it. But this brings me to the next level of discourse at the subnational, which is north, northern Nigeria, because we need to understand the roots of the problems of northern Nigeria. Kaniwood is one example. Many years ago, maybe a decade, a little more than a decade ago, in Kano, a state governor who was a university graduate, who was a teacher, organized a public event at which books written by Northern Nigerian authors were burnt. We set fire to books. You know, the kind of thing the, the medieval church used to do in the Dark Ages, burning books of science, it happened in Kano burning books. What is the crime of those books? They're writing about something called soyaya. And love apparently is supposed to be a very bad word. 
in a society where you don't love your woman and you don't love your children, you allow them to beg, you beat up your woman, why should anyone talk about love? Why? Because we have adopted an interpretation of our culture and our religion that is rooted in a 13th century mindset that refuses to recognize that the rest of the Muslim world has moved on. Today in Malaysia, you wake up and divorce your wife, that's fine. But you give her 50% of all the wealth you acquired since you married her. It's a Muslim country. In Nigeria, you wake up after 20 years of marriage, you say to your wife, I divorce you, and that's it. Other Muslim nations have pushed forward girl-child education. They've pushed forward science and technology. They've pushed forward the arts. And you know, we have this myth in northern Nigeria where we try to create an Islamic society that never existed. You tell me that we should not write books on love in northern Nigeria? I don't know how many of you have read A Thousand and One Nights? Have you heard of it? A Thousand and One Nights, a book of Arabic love and erotica? That entire story was around the palace of the Caliph Harun Rashid, an Abbasid Caliph. The scholars that lived in the Abbasid period that we are quoting, the great scholars were alive when A Thousand and, Night and One Nights was written. We are fighting culture, we are fighting civilization. Now, this is the context that Kaduna State finds itself in, where the greatest challenges we have are one, we must wage an intellectual war because Islam is not univocal. There are many voices, there are many interpretations, there are many viewpoints, and we have for too long allowed the most conservative viewpoint to be in ascendancy. And the consequences of that is that there are certain social problems. In 1960, land per rural hectare in Nigeria, per rural dweller in Nigeria, was 2.0 hectares. Today, it is 0.9 hectares. In a decade, it will be 0.5 hectares. Some of this has been environmental, desertification, desalination. Some of it has been huge demographic explosion, and we do not want to address it. The age at which girls get taken out of school and married, the number of children that they have, having babies every year, the number of wives that people marry when they cannot maintain them and their children. These subjects have been taboo, but we cannot fix the North and get investment into the North until we confront these subjects. 
What is our attitude towards educating our girls? What is our attitude towards child spacing so that we can financially maintain and educate and bring up children? What is the purpose of a large population that is not educated, that is jobless, that is unemployed? Of what benefit is it to the North to have three million children out of school roaming the streets begging? I can't think, I can't conceivably think of any benefit to us as human beings or as Nigerians or as Northerners or as Muslims of having this army of unemployed beggars. And the system cannot cope. You have 250,000 out of school children today, you build the schools. By the time those schools are built, you have 500,000 waiting on the doors. So there has been, for me, in northern Nigeria, a complete failure of social policy. And for us to address social policy, we have to reclaim our religion. We have to look at what our religion actually says as opposed to what culture says. And we have to have the courage to go through the path that all societies went through, which is to stand up and challenge intellectually worldviews. I mean, some of the examples are horrendous. I'm sorry, but a current issue yesterday, if it is true, what I read, 200 people die of meningitis in a state. The governor was asked and he said, it is God's curse on us for the sins. For the sin of fornication, which apparently does not happen in America, which is why they don't have meningitis. I mean, look, how have we reduced ourselves? What have we done as a people? That we have placed ourselves in this situation where simple things, it's a medical issue. You don't have vaccines, you don't have vaccines, go and find vaccines. Treat those who have caught it. Don't give these kinds of explanations. But this is the mindset. And I have a degree in Islamic law, and I can tell you that that is not an Islamically correct statement to make. But these are the kinds of things that we have. And I think when we talk about a difficult environment, we'll realize that 90% of that difficulty we can address because it's self-inflicted. So how do we attract investment in this environment? Because remember that people still invest in Afghanistan. They invest in Russia, they invest in Iraq. Those environments are not necessarily better or less corrupt or safer than our environment. I think summits such as this are a beginning. I think this attitude 
that Governor Erufai has taken, where he appoints himself the Chief Marketing Officer for Kaduna State, has to continue. Because I, I, I spent many years as a banker and as a chief risk officer, and I did road shows. And I know that investors want to talk to the person who is responsible for policy, look into his eyes, listen to him and say, can I trust this man? And that is far more important than what they read in newspapers. Forget Boko Haram, forget Niger Delta, forget the politics. If Nasir Erufai sits down with investors in New York or London or, or Abu Dhabi and presents a clear program for re-industrialization of Kaduna Estate, shows how he's bringing electricity, how he's bringing infrastructure, how he's providing the manpower, how he's providing the security, how he's guaranteeing their returns, they will come and invest in Kaduna. But there's no way there's no way someone sitting in New York, unless he's extremely um, diligent, knows even about something called Kaduna. He sees Nigeria. He sees GDP declining. He sees exchange rate policies. He sees the rate of inflation. He sees Boko Haram. He sees, I mean, that is how the world works. The world works on sound bites. And he makes up his mind that, you know, if I'm going to Africa, this is a spot I'm not going into. It's for this summit and for the leadership of this state to actively say, how do I tell the Kaduna story? And you'll have to deal with other issues as well, because Nasser, you have very complex issues with religion. You have Muslim and Christian leaders who have politicized religion. And they make a lot of money out of it. And they don't mind shedding blood in order to maintain those privileges. And you need to confront that establishment. You need to make it very clear that religion is important to our lives. We are all Muslims and Christians, but religion can never be used as a tool for destabilizing our environment, for creating insecurity, and for placing the state at risk. And anybody who does not live by those rules should face the law. Which is why I support you 100% in your commitment to pursue criminally. You know, if you're an imam or a pastor, and you shed blood, you are a criminal, you are a murderer. You, you, you know, it just... No one doubts that you are an imam or a pastor, no one doubts your knowledge. But your knowledge is one thing, the act of killing a human being is not knowledge, it is a crime. And you should go to jail for it. You can be a pastor in jail. You know, so, you know, until until people, until we have governors who are ready to stand up and say, you know what, there is a limit to how much we are going to just fold our arms and allow human beings appropriate our own religions for selfish reasons and create insecurity 
chase away investors, kill human beings, make life difficult for everybody. And in all this time, they're getting richer and richer. Most of them did not do, there's nothing in the wealth that they have that can be linked either to their level of education or even to their knowledge of the religions that they preach. That they preach. It's all politics. And this is one good thing um, that I commend you for. I, I commend you for your investment in education. I, in, I commend you for your clear articulation of policies. I commend you for your bilateral engagement with investors. And as your friend, who is more moderate than you, I urge you to, to be a little more moderate. <laughs> to, be, to be a little more diplomatic. I have learned um, over time that we all have to sometimes you know, we, we angry by some, there, there are things that you see that anger you and you just leave, you know, and, and face the bigger, bigger battles. Um, I know you, you like fighting every battle. Um, as your friend, I say, identify the big ones, learn to tolerate the small ones, pass some to your deputy governor. <laughs> Which is, um, you know, when, when the Sultan, sends me to represent him at functions, I always say that I'm speaking for myself and the Sultan. And the way you'll know the difference is that anything that is not controversial is from the Sultan, and the rest is from me. Um, so I have a note here saying that it's a bit hot in the hall. I don't know if it's my speech that's making everyone hot or uh, all those lights. But but let me just sum up. I, I think that, in summary, the growth model for Africa, for Nigeria, for the states in Nigeria has to change. Growth is not going to continue coming from rising oil prices. Growth will not come from borrowing and spending government money. Growth will come from investment. I think we should recognize that investors are both local and foreign. Ali Kodongote has invested more in Nigeria than any foreign investor. And there are many local investors. So we need to create an environment in which we attract and encourage domestic capitalists to invest. Because first, it keeps the money in Nigeria. It provides great long-term security. We can link them up with foreign partners as shareholders who would like to exit later after bringing in the technology and the skills. But we need to encourage Kaduna State Indigenous Nigerian entrepreneurs to invest in Kaduna. We need to tell the story of Kaduna and its history as a capital of northern Nigeria. Talk about the Kaduna Industrial Estate. Um, Dr. Mutalab talked about a school called Barewa College. Um, I'm a King's College boy. I was compelled by the Sultan to clap. Uh, for those who do not know, King's College produces all the progressive Nigerian intellectuals, and Barewa produces all the conservative northern aristocrats. Um, and and I, would, um, I would really encourage you to invest um, a lot in Barewa and try to make it look more like King's College. And, uh, and produce uh, more, more, more progressive and radical um, 
uh, northerners. We need, we need them at this point in time. But frankly, I think that there's little to add. This is the first step. And I like the fact that you're going back to say, this is what we did last year, because accountability is important. And I do hope, um, for the sake of Kaduna State, that every politician in Kaduna, whether he's in Nasser's party or in another party, is watching. And I do hope that when Nasser, because Nasser will leave office, if you have a vision of 2018, 2015, when, when Nasser leaves office, whoever steps into those shoes from whichever political party should just continue with this blueprint. You know, it, it, does not, it does not hurt anyone to build on the work of his predecessor. It does not hurt anyone. And I think this is why the traditional institution in the North has survived. We all build on the works of our fathers. Nobody wants to destroy what his father has done. We see what they're doing, we build on that vision. And that's how you build a 40, 50 year uh, vision. Um, so I have said enough. Like I said, I have tried not to offend anyone. I apologize in advance and I apologize again in arrears in case anyone um, has taken offense. I wish you all the best, um, Nasser, I wish Kaduna State the best. And I do hope that all the governors in, in the north will adopt this and will focus on this. We do need these investments. We do need investors to come in from within Nigeria and from outside. We need investments in agriculture, in industry, in power. We need to create jobs. But more important, we need the governments to focus on education, especially the girl child education, and on ICT. Um, thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, I can see that. Standing ovation for His Royal Highness, the Emir of Kano, uh, His Royal Highness Mohammed Sanusi II, Commander of the Order of the Niger, who spoke very, very well, having researched uh, his presentation very well and taken from the Islamic jurisprudence, where uh, in Northern Nigeria, majority of us is the doctrine that we seem to be following, okay? And even had time to inject a little bit of some humor into it. We thank you very much, Your Royal Highness, sir. Uh, moving ahead, you know, before the keynote address, we actually invited three